Um, but I wanted to start off, um, before I actually read the passage, by telling you a story about myself, just to kind of give it some kind of context before we look at the passage itself. So I was being given a lift by some friends, and I was sitting in the back seat of the car and listening to them as they chatted. And they were having a little bit of a heart-to-heart because one of them was having a bit of a row with her husband. And um, they were, uh, where they were, they are a lovely Christian, fully committed, very heavily involved in their church couple. And the argument started as the result of some sort of good news. They inherited totally unexpectedly a large sum of money, 200,000 pounds to be exact. And they were initially really excited about this. And they decided what would be best is to go away, have a think and pray about it, and then meet together and decide what would be the best thing to do with the money. So they did that, and they came together, and the husband explained that he'd done a lot of research, and he thought the best thing that they could do was invest it as a deposit on some property. And quietly in the back seat, I was thinking, yeah, sounds like a very good decision. And I was a little bit taken aback when the... Um, girl said how really disappointed and upset she was with her husband. And she told him so. She said, we already have a house and we have savings in the bank. What do you need another property for? Haven't we always dreamed about being able to invest in an outreach project? Well, this is our opportunity. We don't need the money. We weren't even expecting it. Let's invest it in other people and not in a building. But her husband responded by explaining that they may well have enough for themselves, but they need to make sure that they're looking after their children's future and their children's children's future. And again, silently in the back seat, I thought, what an eminently sensible man. Um, He said, we have responsibilities. They are our priority. And when we've sorted that, then we can afford the luxury of giving away our vast sums of money. Again, I just thought that this seems really practical and sensible. But she continued, when we first got married, we used to speak for hours into the night about how we dreamed about reaching the people in our local community and making a difference. What happened? You say we need the money because we need to ensure our children's future, but they already have more than most children have. When do we have enough? At what point will we have enough to share with others? If we don't do this now, we never will. This overheard conversation led to a lot of soul-searching on my behalf. I know that if I had been in their situation, I would come up with exactly the same plan as the husband. But I know she's right. The question is, when do we have enough? At what point should we stop worrying about shoring up our own future and help somebody else? How rich is rich? Retrospectively, I'm shocked that the fact would never have occurred to me to share the money if it had been given to me. I used to be really generous with my money but clearly I have allowed greed to dull my sensitivity to the spirit. 
Without even realizing it, I was losing my saltiness. The thing is, with any other sin, we'd know if we had a problem. The trouble with greed is that it's self-masking. Few people are aware that they have issues with greed. If I were going to give a talk about lust, anger, or envy, I'm confident that there would at least be some people in the room who would think that my talk applied to them because they would be aware of the struggles that they were having in that area. They wouldn't be able to hide it from themselves. If your Achilles heel is adultery, you're not likely to turn around and say, oh, I'm so so sorry, I didn't realize that wasn't my husband. (laughs) If your struggle is, is with anger, it'll be apparent to you and most people around you. If you're a thief, you could very well be able to hide it from other people but you're unlikely to be able to hurt it from yourself. However, as I speak to you here this evening about greed, it's highly unlikely that anybody in this room is thinking that they've got a problem. Because, I would like to suggest, we are blinded to this sin. And I know that that's true for me. Until I heard that story, I could have sworn I was not greedy. You see, however much I have there's always going to be somebody who is richer than me. That's who Jesus is addressing, not me. In theory, I absolutely believe that we're all called to share wealth. The question isn't whether I believe it in theory, but whether I'm any good at it in practice. If we saw somebody starving to death on our doorstep, I feel fairly confident that every single person here would share their food. And I would imagine that God hopes that we would provide, God who provides all our good things would hope that we would share with those in need. But what if we don't actually see them on our doorstep? God wants us to share what we have, but that's not how it works in practice. The shocking thing I discovered recently is if the world's wealth were a cake, the 26 richest people in the world, between them, would own nearly half that cake. And the poorest half of the rest of the population would, earn, would own most of the other half. And I learned at college that if you own a house, you're in the top 10% of the richest people in the world. And as a house owner myself, that is a scary thought. When I think about what lies behind my struggle to give, it's fear, fear of not having enough. You see, money promises to keep us safe and to shelter us from life's storms. But as Jesus points out in the parable we're about to read, that is foolish thinking. We cannot insure ourselves against life. Both the Bible and history make it very clear that no matter how careful we are, we can lose everything with no warning, be it as the result of a tsunami or a bank crash, a fire or a recession. Money promises what it cannot deliver. Earth is not a safe place to invest. If we want to ensure a good life for eternity, we need to invest ahead. And this is the issue I believe that Jesus is addressing in this passage. 
So we're almost going to read the passage. I just want to give you a little bit of a background. The scene takes place up on a mountainside where many thousands have gathered to listen to Jesus and are pressing in in order to be able to hear what he has to say. Just before the passage we're about to read, Jesus has been speaking privately to his disciples prior to addressing the masses. He's been urging them to have an eternal perspective. He says, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but after that can do no more. But fear the one who after the body has been killed has the authority to throw you into hell. Yet don't be afraid, because you are precious in God's eyes. And I will acknowledge before God all those who acknowledge me before others. But those who disown me will be disowned before God. Jesus is trying to get his disciples to understand that this life is temporary. But what we do while we're here will impact what happens on the other side of eternity. And the person who is about to ask the question that prompts the telling of the parable is standing nearby because he's obviously eagerly awaiting the opportunity to approach Jesus with his request. And because we know he's standing so close, we know that he has the privilege of listening to Jesus as he teaches his disciples. But his focus is clearly elsewhere. He's eager to get Jesus to endorse um, his to endorse him because his brother has been withholding his inheritance from him. On a father's death, it would be normal to divide the estate evenly between the sons, although the older son would get a double portion. The man feels aggrieved and wants Jesus to step in on his behalf. Eternity can wait. He has more pressing matters at hand. So let's read the passage. Uh, The words will come up on the screen, but for those who want to follow along in their own Bible, we'll be looking at Luke 12, verses 13 to 21. If you've got a church Bible, that's on page 1044, or in the large print Bible, on 1668. Here we go. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life doesn't consist in an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, What shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he thought, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and I'll build bigger ones. And there I'll store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy and drink and eat and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be for whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich towards God. So this was certainly not the response the man had been expecting. 
As far as he was concerned, his request was more than reasonable. He's only asking for what the law tells him is rightfully his. And surely that doesn't make him greedy. The trouble is, he's so caught up in this world that he's oblivious to the fact that Jesus has just been warning his disciples about this. He's been speaking about the folly of investing in this world rather than the next. And yet the man completely misses the irony of his question. He's come with his own agenda, so he doesn't have ears to hear what Jesus is saying. And we can tell by the fact that he's there, he's traveled some way to see Jesus. Therefore, one would expect that he thinks that Jesus is at least a rabbi, if not the Messiah. And yet he's not listening to him. He's come with his own agenda to get Jesus to ensure his life on earth is a comfortable one. And that's all that interests him. He's standing in the presence of a man who heals the sick, raises the dead, and forgives sins. Is money really what he wants to talk about? Is his eternal inheritance not more interesting than his earthly one? Jesus asks the man, who appointed me judge or an arbiter between you? He wants the man to open up his spiritual eyes and see who it is he's standing in front of. Jesus has just been speaking about one who will judge who will go to hell. And as we know, it is he himself who is appointed as our judge. All authority on heaven, in heaven and on earth is his. Who appointed Jesus to be judge or arbiter between the man and his brother? God the Father. But the man standing in front of him is oblivious to this. And then Jesus warns those gathered, be, against, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. The man doesn't think he has a problem, but by his actions we can tell that his heart is not sold out for God, but for mammon. The place where his heart rests is revealed by his question. If he were pursuing God, his most pressing question would not be about his earthly inheritance. In the parable Jesus then recounts, he speaks of the folly of putting your security in wealth. It is a false God. There is only one true God, and all other pretenders to the throne, including Mammon, are imposters. They do not deliver life in all its fullness, as promised. Jesus alone does that. In Matthew 6, verses 19 to 24, Jesus elaborates on this theme. He says, Do not store up for yourself treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasure in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And no one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. When, like the rich man in the parable, we use wealth to cushion our lives, we invest in something that provides less security than we imagine and that we can't take with us when we go. However, when we keep a loose hold of our wealth and share what we have, we not only bless those we give to, but we store up treasure for ourselves in heaven. And this is surely a better investment. As my friend's husband pointing out, pointed out, Giving looks, like giving looks like foolishness from a worldly viewpoint, 
But as his wife pointed out, it is wisdom from a godly perspective. Jesus finishes by warning the man, this is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich towards God. So what do you think it means to be rich towards God? Being rich towards God means loving him above all else. Let me explain what I mean by telling you about when I first started dating my husband, James. I was absolutely infatuated with him. Nothing interested me more than spending time with him. You could have offered me six million pounds or the opportunity to spend time with James and I would have gone for the James option. I would have jumped at any chance of a relationship with him. I didn't care if we were rich or poor, if we lived in England or Uzbekistan. I only cared that I was able to spend time with him. And when I wasn't with him, I spent my time thinking about how I could please him and how I could make life better for him. For once in my life, I spent more time thinking about somebody else than I did about myself. And that, I believe, was me being rich towards James. Being rich towards God means living life like that for God, ruminating on how we could spend more time with him and how we could please him and how we could make life on earth more like he had hoped it would be. Our love of God and of others needs to be greater than our fear of lack of wealth. So, does that mean we need to give God the Old Testament tithe of 10%? No. We need to give 100%. It's not legalism. It's about a relationship. It's a mindset of love. God has given us everything we have and we need to keep open hands, allowing him to use whatever he would like for his glory. It really isn't about how much money we have or even about how much money we give. It's about the tightness of our grip. Our souls don't depend on our getting stuff. If we believe that, we miss the point. The desire for more takes us off track and ruins our lives. Jesus was the ultimate rich man, but when he came to earth, he was utterly stripped of everything. He went to the cross empty-handed, owning only the clothes on his back. He literally gave up everything because he thought we were worth it. He was rich towards us. And now it's our chance to reciprocate.